Thank you so much, choir, and thank you to Tom Tillman, how beautifully he's led us in worship this morning, coming to us from Dallas. Thank you, Tom, for leading us today, good friends with our own Dan Baker. Turn your Bibles to Colossians 2. We'll look at that passage for just a moment, and then we're going to look at various passages. If you'll just listen and follow up, most of them you won't turn to. I'll, I'll just ask you to listen carefully for our time's sake, because we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Today we come to our third sermon in a series of sermons on discipleship. These sermons have centered upon four words, abiding, becoming, connecting, and doing. The next few months and even years we'll be looking at discipleship as a process and not a program. It is a a development of the Spirit within each one of us. Well, today our word is connection, connecting. To be a follower of Jesus is to also be part of his people. To be a follower of Jesus is also to be part of his people. Paul Turnier was insightful when he declared, there are two things that you cannot do alone. One is to be married, and the other is to be a Christian. Two things you cannot do in solitude, be married or be a Christian. Pastor scholar Eugene Peterson agreed, our membership in the church is corollary to our faith in Christ. We can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church than we can be a person and have nothing to do with family. Church is part of our fabric of redemption. Church is part of our fabric of redemption. Well, I'm going to give you key words. The first key word is connect. It comes here from Colossians 2.2. Paul makes it clear that God cannot really be known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love. You cannot know God outside of loving your brother. In Ephesians 3, 17 and 18, he says something very similar, that only as Christians are rooted and well-founded in love can they comprehend with all the saints. Now, I want you to see that. Only as we are loving each other can we comprehend God and God's revelation with all the saints. My individual interpretation is not what is of interest to God. It is the community's reading and hearing and interpreting His Word that is of importance to God. Only when we understand God along with all the saints have we understood Him rightly. Our culture, much to the contrary, promotes individual spirituality. This type of renegade religion concludes that an individual's relationship with God is no one else's business except for that individual and God. They see the relationship that each of us to have is with the Creator alone and not with community. 
As a result of this proliferation of personalized religion, there are many more who claim to be followers of Christ Jesus than gather on any Sunday morning in the houses of worship on this, the celebration day of his resurrection. The author of Hebrews, whomever he or she might be, put it plainly when he or she said, we cannot forsake together the gathering of community. When we say Jesus is Lord, we are also saying, you are my sibling. He is my father, and you have become my brothers and my sisters. The call of the New Testament is in no way a call to be an isolated, individual, standalone follower of Jesus. The call is to connect to community. Second word, family. Family. A few years ago, we had a visitor in Sunday school who fizzed out the visitor's card, and she put down her name and her address and her email and her phone number, and the question was there, are you a Christian? And she said, yes. And the next question was, are you a church member? And she wrote, little bit, little bit. <laughs> I, I chuckled when I got her response. She was, little bit, a church member. I appreciate her honesty. Wow, she was laying it out there like it was. But I was disagreeing with her theology. We are never called to be a little bit part of a church. We are called to be fully part of the people of God. In the New Testament, Christians are depicted as loving each other like brothers and sisters love each other. The New Testament applies language that was normally used for biological families that uncommon deep love and concern and bearing one another's burdens and places it likewise upon God's people. Now, as to the love of the brethren, Paul writes, you have no need for anyone to write to you. As to loving the brothers, loving the brothers, I don't have to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, to love one another. This family love for Paul was to be in the church. This idea that believers share some sense of family with each other is everywhere found in the New Testament. Romans and Hebrews and 1 Peter and 2 Peter and 1 Thessalonians and the Gospels. A deacon in our church was giving his testimony a few years ago. This particular young man had lost his father at a young age. And when he gave his testimony, he looked to the church family, he looked to you, and he declared, when I needed a father, you were my fathers. When I needed a mother, you were my mothers. When I needed brothers, you were my siblings. When I needed sisters, you were there for me. Not having a, a close-knit, being struck by death, not having the familiar nuclear family like many of us, he saw the value of the older men in the church being his father. 
God's people are always and everywhere in the New Testament to love each other like family. So strong is this that Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that we cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not love our brother whom we have seen. The family-like love among God's people happens in the setting of what we call church. The third word is images. Connect family in images. What are those overarching images in the New Testament of the church? The word for church is ecclesia, E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A, ecclesia. It comes from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and it was the word that was used for ancient Israel when she stood at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb waiting for a word from God. It meant the assembly, the gathered people of God, God's people, God's covenant people, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the gathered people of God. Paul took this vivid imagery, this powerful word, and he applied it to the new community that had gathered around the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus. Make no mistake about what Paul's saying, that now, the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, you are the gathered people of God. The ecclesia, the called out ones. Where there are other images, not just ecclesia or called out ones, but the bride of Christ. If Christ is the groom, then the church is the bride. We are together with the Christ in his mission. We are partners with him. We are the bride of Christ. Or you remember in Ephesians where we are the body of Christ. In fact, I'm going to show you in a moment something you've probably never noticed before about God's Word. And it's shocking. We are so connected to Christ. We are His body. We are His eyes and His mouth, His tongue, His hands, His feet. What we do in the name of Christ is what Christ does. The church is the body of Christ. There, there are other images as well. We're the new Israel or the people of God, Ephesians 2. We're the new Israel or the people of God. We're the household or the family of God, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4. Or we are a God's planting to bring forth fruit to his glory, 1 Corinthians 3 or, or John 15, that vine and branches that you may bear much fruit. We are God's garden, and he tills us and prunes us and expects us as the church to bear much fruit. All images of the church in New Testament. Each local church, wherever she gathers to worship, represents the full covenant people of God in the New Testament. In fact, most of the time that you read the word church in the New Testament, it's not speaking of some larger universal sense of church, though it's that way sometimes. Most often, 
When you hear the word church, ecclesia in the New Testament, it's talking about real people in a real city and a real place gathered to fulfill the Great Commission. I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, write to you. The Christians in Corinth or Thessalonica or Philippi. Or past Paul's letters when earlier we read in the Acts of the Apostles. We read there about the, the church that gathered in Jerusalem or the exploding church in Antioch or the other church in Caesarea. These are real churches and real places centered around the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus to fulfill the Great Commission. Or Revelation. There are seven letters to seven ecclesia in seven locations Real churches in real places with real people is what interests the New Testament. The local church is as much a part of the New Testament as the deity of Christ or the creative activity of God. The ex our existence as church is as much the New Testament as is the deity of Christ or the creating activity of God. That's saying a lot, but it's true. In fact, New Testament scholar Robert Sloan said, and I quote, the church, even more so than Christ, occupied Paul's attention when he was motivated to search the Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. When Paul looks at the Old Testament, more than focusing on Christ, he focuses on the bride of Christ, the church. The New Testament's clear. Churches were organized, even institutionalized. They had leaders. They were permanent. They weren't temporary or loose gatherings of people who might gather this week and then might not gather next week. The church at Antioch, for example, was more than a passing purpose. The church at Rome, the church at Corinth, the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, they were permanent and def definitely organized bodies of believers. In each of those places, the church focused on fulfilling the Great Commission to go and to make disciples, to teach them the things of Christ, and to baptize them. Oh, this idea that you don't need to be organized or institutionalized or have officers or have a sense of permanency about you is very far from the New Testament image of the church. Where leaders and officials were appointed by the apostles. There's a fourth word, and that word is Christ. The fourth word is Christ. Now, I believe I'm going to show you something you maybe have never seen in the New Testament. And when you see it, I want you to see how dumbfounding, how striking it is. The next word for church is Christ. Jesus believed the church was so closely connected to him that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, I will build, what's next? My church. I will build my church, Matthew 16, 18. In fact, there is this 
super identification between Christ and the church. Now, this is the amazing thing. Maybe you've never seen it when you read it, that sometimes when you think Paul should use the word church, he uses the word Christ. You're reading along, and he's talking about the church, and all of a sudden, instead of the word church, he uses the word Christ as if the church and Christ are identical, as if in some way they have a super identification of being the same thing. Well, let me put the proof in the pudding here. It goes like this. Christ and the church suffer together. We hold a shared unity together, and we experience a, a common resurrection. He, the first fruit, and we shall follow. Well, look at the first one, persecuting the church. The church was so connected to Christ that on the road to Damascus, when Paul saw the bright light, he was going to arrest Christians and bring them back for prosecution and persecution in Jerusalem. And he hears that voice from heaven, the voice of the resurrected Jesus that says, as he's going to arrest church members, why are you persecuting me? You see the surprise? You'd expect him to say, why are you persecuting my people? But Christ and the church are so super identified that to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. You make no mistake about it. We wake up and read the shocking news every day around the world of Christians leaving, living in dangerous lands, a bomb here, an explosion there. To do that to the church is the same as doing it to Christ. Why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, he wasn't going to arrest Jesus. He was going to arrest the church. But Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Causing the church to suffer is the same as causing Christ to suffer because the church is the body of Christ. You see that? Secondly, we see this close connection between Christ and the church when we learn that to divide, Christ, to divide the church is to divide Christ. Do you remember when he's writing in 1 Corinthians, the, the church is very bifurcated there. There are schisms, there are groups. Some say we are followers of Paul. Another group says, oh, we're followers of Apollos. Another group says, oh, we're followers of Peter. Another group says, we're followers of Christ. And right there, early on in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about the divisions that exist in the church in Corinth, he uses a shocking word when he says, 1 Corinthians 1.13, has Christ been divided? We're not talking about Christ. We're talking about the church in Corinth. These four groups in the church in Corinth, and Paul surprises his reader when he says, has Christ been divided? As if to say, to divide the church, to hurt the church, is to hurt Christ. And later in that same book, he looks at the church like a body. Well, some of you are eyes, and some of you are ears, and some of you are mouths. Oh, some of you are mouths, and some of you are hands, and some of you are feet. We have this church, this, this, divide, this church with different gifts used together for one good cause. 
And he's describing the church's various gifts and various parts of the body. Paul says, so also is Christ. He's describing the human body. It has hands and feet and has mouth and ears. And he's talking about the church. And naturally he would say, well, that's just like the church. But he doesn't. He says, that's just like Christ. And that's shocking. He's not talking about Christ. He's talking about the gifts of the church. And so he uses the word Christ, the Christos, equivalent with ecclesia, as if they are so co-joined that to speak of the church is to speak of Christ. That's powerful. The church and Christ are one. There's another word I want you to see. The word is service. The fifth word is, is service. The New Testament exists not to offer you a baptized version of pop psychology to necessarily help you with your parenting or the stress at work. or And we do all those things, but that's not our primary purpose. The primary purpose of the church is service in this way. The church preaches a radical message that God was at work in Rabbi Jesus, especially in his crucifixion and resurrection, in such a way that God has encountered humanity in a way that brings salvation. That's our message. Nobody else has that message. That's the message of the church. That's what no one else can say. We are the voice. We are to fulfill the Great Commission. We are to go and make disciples. We have a radical message that you are a sinner and God loves you nonetheless and Christ has died for you and you can be redeemed. That's the voice, the unique message of the church. Archbishop William Temple perhaps said it best when declared, the church is the only society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. The church is the only society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Sometimes we got to be careful that we don't get so interested, entertaining, and amusing ourselves that we forget that we're not here for ourselves. We're here for those outside the walls who need the message of the gospel. We're not about gaining members and growing roles and having this menu of ministries that we're just providing you religious, spiritual goods and services. That's not the kind of church we want to be. We want to exist primarily in all of those things for the reaching out to those who have not heard or do not know or have not responded to the message that Jesus is Lord in his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again. The next word is everybody. Everybody. Church ought to be the one place where everyone feels equal and everyone is treated the same. In the book of James, we were told, do not judge those who come into the church. Do not say to the rich man, here, you sit here in this prime spot while you say the poor man maybe there's some room on the floor at the back do not do that do not be a judge of persons Romans Paul says we ought not think more highly of ourselves 
We are never to approach this place of worship as a haughty Pharisee who looks down his nose at the sinners in the room. Rather, we're all to come as a broken sinner who says, Oh God, I can't even look up. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. It is a place for everybody. It doesn't matter our political persuasion. It doesn't matter our socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter our generation. I've thought about this a lot this weekend through various discussions with my daughter Chandler. By having one style of worship which tries to incorporate many styles and cultures, we keep the family together. You look around this room. There's children on the steps, there's middle-aged people, there's older people. We have not segmented and say, you worship at this hour and you worship this hour, keeping the family apart. It is a gathering of multi-generations and one voice of praise that says, young or old, this place, this hour is for everybody. You might not know it, but you're very unique in maintaining the multi-generational approach to worship. One of Chandler's friends texted her yesterday. She'd gone to another city, was visiting all these churches. I guess she was getting in contemporary worship time and time again. And she said, I just want to go where there's some old people, she texted to Chandler. (laughs) I do too and some middle-aged people, and some babies, and some Laotians, and some Vietnamese, and some Africans, and some Latinos. Everyone is here. Fred Craddock grew up poor, pastor, scholar. He remembers his family was even losing the family farm. They all gathered together on that first day of school, when all the kids tell about their summer vacation. One kid had been to the Niagara Falls. Another kid had been to Washington to see all the monuments. Another kid had been to New York. Each one telling all these exciting things they had seen and experienced. And it came to Fred Craddock's time to share. And thank goodness the bell rung. But he knew. Tomorrow he was going to be first up to tell about his summer vacation. He talked about his dad, talked about it with his dad. His dad said, well, if you'll just take the highlights from each of the other students and you'll weave them together in your own story, you'll have the best story there. He said, that's what I'll do. So he said, it came my turn, and I was sharing. He said, first I went to New York, and I visited all the big places there. He said, I went to Washington. I was walking through all the monuments. He said, I was somewhere on this side of Niagara Falls. My teacher said, Fred, I want to see you in the hallway. And she said, Fred, you didn't do all that. No, ma'am. Why did you say all that? Because I was embarrassed. Why were you embarrassed? Because I hoed sweet potatoes all summer and didn't go anywhere. 
He said, I remember it wasn't a bad summer. I should have told the truth. I should have said that I was hitting squirrels with little sweet potatoes. And, and I kept my sister screaming all summer long, tossing them her way. He said, and one day, a group of women from the Central Avenue Christian Church in Humboldt, Tennessee, visited the Craddock home. They brought in things for the children to wear. And amongst the things they brought for the children to wear, of course, to get them to church was a new pair of Buster Brown shoes. And they were just Fred's size. Now, now you can go to Sunday school, Fred, his mother said. He said he, he later learned that they were girls' shoes, but that day it didn't matter. They would do just fine. But he said, I didn't want to go to Sunday school because I figured it would be just the same. Where did you go on vacation? And who are you? And how much do you have? But from the first day, wearing those charity shoes, Fred Craddock found out that church was a very different kind of place. He writes, and I quote, I was never embarrassed in church. I don't ever remember feeling any different, any less, any more than anybody else in church. And from that age until now, I have this jubilee going on in my mind. There is no place in the world like church. There is no place in the world like church. Craddock remembered his mother took him to Sunday school every Sunday, starting with those girls' shoes. But his dad would never go. His father would stay home and complain that church had made his lunch late. And the preacher would come over and call upon Mr. Craddock and Mr. Craddock would say out loud, the preacher embarrassing his wife, the church doesn't care about me. All they want is another name and another pledge. That's all you want is another name and another pledge. You don't care anything about me. And sometimes when evangelists would come to town, they would bring the, the visiting evangelist in and point to Mr. Craddock and say, sick him. See if you can do anything with him. And he would say the same thing. You don't care about me. All you want is another name and another pledge. I must have heard it a thousand times, Craddock writes. My dad saying, the church doesn't care about me. All they want is another pledge, another name. But there was one day when he did not say it. He was in the veterans hospital and he was down to 73 pounds. They had taken out his throat and they'd said it's too late. They put in a metal tube and treatments had burned him to pieces and Fred Craddock flew out to see his dying father who by now could not eat, could not speak, couldn't do anything, just dying. And around that room were potted plants here and cut flowers over there. On the table where they usually put your food was nothing but stacks of cards, stacks of cards, stacks of cards. He couldn't take nutrition, so there, there were stacks of cards. And Fred Craddock picked up one of those cards and began to read it. His father, who could not speak and didn't have any paper, reached for the hospital clinic's box and a pen, and he began to write on 
the box a line from Shakespeare. In this harsh world, draw your breath with pain to tell my story. In this harsh world, draw your breath with pain to tell my story. What's your story, Daddy? And he wrote, I was wrong. I was wrong. If we miss the church as the ecclesia, the people of God, as the new covenant community of the Lord, then we will be wrong too. Connect. Paul makes it clear, to connect to Christ means we must connect to his people. To call him Lord is to call you brother and you sister. Let us pray. Oh God, we come today and reminded in this room full of people that we are here for a purpose. We are called out of our busy lives and off the athletic field and away from work and school to be here on this day to say this is the day that our Christ rose again. Maybe there's some here this morning who need to come and make that great profession that Jesus is Lord, or maybe there are others who need to come and be a part of this church family because they've called you Father, oh God. They need to call us siblings. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.